0: Hey, good morning. Hey, let me just encourage you, uh, if you're here today, uh, last week, if you were there, we talked about leaning into faithfulness as a really important thing in our time and day and age when we're living in the gray area. So first, I want to commend you for leaning into faithfulness for getting here when it's raining. We've, I've talked about this a number of times, like we need more resolve than like, it's raining, I'm not going to church. Like we need to be stronger than that, And we also need to be stronger than, it's really nice outside, I'm not going to church. So I don't know, like, I I feel like as a pastor, I can't win, um, but it's nice to see you guys leaning into that. I also do want to challenge you, though. I want to encourage you, and then I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you that I know gas prices are going to go up this summer, and I know you're noticing at the pump how it's, like, costing, like, 100 bucks to fill up your car and then some. This is also time to lean into Giving. So lean into generosity in these times. God doesn't say, hey, be generous as long as gas prices are low. He says, no, be generous. So here's a rule of thumb that I have for myself because I do feel the tension like when I'm giving offering, like the, I feel like the pull, like God has to yank it out of my hands. If I'm not willing to cancel my vacation, I'm not going to cancel my giving. So give God of your first and your best and then pay for everything else. That's my challenge to you, all right? Cool? Love you guys. Thank you for giving and being faithful in that way. We are continuing our series in Judges, and we're in Judges chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And in that, we're going to be in verses uh, 7 to 31. So I believe that might be on page 202 in your Bibles, but I could be wrong, so don't quote me on that. You can also Google it if you would like, Judges 3. Judges 3 verse 7. Before we get there, and as you're turning there, I know not everyone loves surprise parties, but I do. I love them. I love being a part of them, and I love when I'm the focus of them particularly. And that's exactly what my lovely wife gave me on my 30th birthday. I actually had a surprise birthday party. And I, frankly, like, I'm embarrassed and say I didn't see it coming. Like, I did not know, and which always makes it a good surprise when you don't see a surprise coming. And on that day, I came home and no one was there because Amanda had mentioned to me that she's going to be with her family and the kids are going to be there too and they're going to be with her them that evening. So I was like, I'm going to surprise her and I'm going to take all the Christmas decorations down when I get home from work. So when I got home from work, I took down all the Christmas decorations. I'm embarrassed to say it was mid-January I like to be the guy, like, New Year's after New Year's Day, I'm the guy taking down the the decorations, like, Christmas is over, we're moving on, life goes on. But it's mid-January, so I was a little embarrassed that they're already up in the first place, but at least I, I said to myself, well, at least I'm not the guy who's taking them down in March, right? So we all know that guy, and if you're that guy, we love you, but just take down the decorations just a little earlier. That's all we're asking. But then my wife gives me a phone, she calls me on the phone, and she says, Evan, I need you to come over here. I said, what's going on? What's going on? Well, my, my mom fell and twisted her ankle, and she has to go to the hospital, so I need you to come and, and help us out. And I said, like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to drive over there. So I drove. We're about 10 minutes away. So I drove over, and I get there, and I'm like, huh, that, that looks just like my friend's car. That's weird, right? Like, why would, Well, Yeah. Some, I guess more people. You know, some people own the same car. That's it's weird. It's the same license plate from a different state, but whatever. And I and I walk. <laughs> I walk into there, and I walk in, and everyone shouts, "What surprise!" And I was like floored, and I was so thrilled to celebrate my 30th birthday with friends and family that I loved, and uh, still do love. I don't want you to take the past tenses as this. I don't love them still. But what makes a good surprise? is its unpredictability. In fact, that's basically what surprise is. You can't predict it. You don't know it's going to happen. And last week we talked about how, we, how we, as we're in what Mark Sayers calls a gray zone. We're not in a new era. We're in the time between eras. So we're feeling the tension in the pool of the passing era as well as the new one that's developing. And in that time, it can be confusing and contradictory. But here's the deal. We said this last week. God still works. In the gray zone. And so the Israelites and judges, they're in this similar place. They're in a gray zone between the passing era of Moses and Joshua and the coming era of the king starting with David. But right now they're in the gray zone and God is still working in the gray zone and many times in unpredictable, surprising ways. Here's what I want us to take away today, that God saves in surprising ways. That's it. God saves in surprising ways. And I want to talk to you about the predictable sin, and then I want to talk to you about surprising salvation. And really ask, like, which one are you after? Which one do you really want? So there's 12 judges in the book of Judges. And if you were here last week, I said, don't think about them as like men and women in black robes. Think of them more like military chieftains, right? Tribal leaders. They're these like tough You know, like calloused hands, buff dudes with spears and swords. And there's actually a woman as well, which we'll hear about next week, which is awesome too. Right? It's a really cool thing. And this passage we're going to cover today covers the first three of them. So there's 12 of them, which the Bible likes the number 12 a lot. And then there's three here in this passage. The first is Othniel. Othniel is the brother, or actually can be translated nephew, of Caleb. So it's either his brother or his nephew. doesn't really make it much easier to pill to swallow when in chapter 1 he marries his uncle or his brother's daughter. But that's a side point for another day. That's a whole other sermon. But teenagers, students, when Moses sent out 12 spies to check out the land God promised to give Israel... Only two came back with a positive report where they would trust God for his promises. One being Joshua, and the other, Caleb. So Othniel comes from this faithful pedigree. Like, he's the guy. Like, if you're going to start the book of Judges, he's the guy. In fact, he kind of becomes the pattern for the rest of Judges. And so his story sets this pattern we actually come to expect for how Israel and Israel's God, Yahweh, will act. And it's a little more complicated than this, but essentially, there's in the has, every passage kind of breaks down, every story kind of breaks down in four R's. Okay? Four R's. First, Israel rebelled. Look at verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Ashereth. Then Yahweh sent retribution rebelled now retribution verse 8 therefore the anger of the lord was kindled against israel and he sold them into the hand of kushan rish athaim which actually just means kushan double wickedness so it's probably not his real name it's probably the author kind of making fun of him king of mesopotamia all right rebelled retribution and then israel roared they cried out, right? Verse 9 says, But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, Israel roared. They cried out. Which is interesting. The Hebrew here does not mean they repented. And we'll come back to that later. That's really interesting, though, that they did not repent. They simply roar. They simply cry out to God. And then Yahweh rescued. Verse 9 continues. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother or nephew. And the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. All right, so the Holy Spirit's not a New Testament idea. He was always there. He was eternal. We read all that in the Athanasian Creed. And he judged Israel. He went out to war, to war. And the Lord gave Kushan double wickedness, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Kushan double wickedness. So the land had, 40, had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So rebellion, retribution, roaring, and then rescue. Those four R's. So we might come to predict that this pattern will always be this clean Israel will rebel, God will send retribution, Israel will roar. And God will rescue. We th- always are going to think it's going to be this clean. But what we see in the book of Judges is that God is full of surprises and he saves his people in surprising ways. And for some of you, you need to hear that today. Some of you, re- you realize life has not gone as you predicted it would go. You're not married when you thought you would. Your kids aren't superstar perfect children like you thought that you, they would be. They're not sleeping through the night like you thought they would. You're like, I know for everyone else they don't sleep through the night, but like it's going to be different for me. And every parent left just there because it's true. We all thought the same thing. You don't have a career or a job that you wanted. Or there's been a lot of suffering and hurt and pain and death. Some of you have been through cancer treatments. It hasn't gone as you predicted. You need to know that God saves his people in surprising ways. You can count on his salvation, but it might not come the way you expect or predict it. So the predictability or the predictable sin, the only thing that is truly predictable in Judges is this line, verse 12. We already heard it once in verse 7. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Sin and its results are predictable. Israel rebelled. They'll always rebel. They will always sin time and time and time again. And this is the only thing you can predict in Judges. And verse 12 continues. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Now this is for free. Moab was a small group of people who actually weren't in the promised land. So God kind of goes outside the land that he promised Israel to raise up this king. That's for free. Impress your friends with that later. Because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, which is Jericho, which is also sad. Think about that. Jericho, which they took over and destroyed, now is in Moab's hands. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. The only predictable thing in this life is the predictability of sin. Sin will continue to find a way to mess with God's plans and take down his, try to take down his people. Even after Othniel, this faithful judge, this standard judge, the standard pattern... After 40 years of this wonderful rest, the next generation does what? They rebel. They sin. So if you rewind to last week, I said this line, faithful parents don't always produce faithful kids. And unfaithful parents don't always produce unfaithful kids. Because even in your best efforts to pass on your faith to the next generation, it doesn't guarantee that that generation will follow Christ. God is only asking you to do your best. Your kids and your grandkids, though, will ultimately have to decide if they're going to follow Christ. So our trust isn't in our ability to make it happen, our trust is in God who in his love won't abandon the next generation. Our trust is in God's ability. And so the only thing that you can predict is that sin will disrupt and destroy the good that God has done and is doing. That's the only thing you can guarantee. Sin will try to do it again and again and again because sin is predictable because its author is predictable See, Satan's methods haven't gotten more creative since the garden. They're the same methods over and over and over again. He's always trying to get you to choose to serve the gods that you see rather than the one you can't. He's always having you do that. Adam and Eve, serve yourselves. The gods right in front of you, serve yourselves and take the fruit and eat it rather than the God who's, where's where's God right now? Oh, yeah, he just doesn't want you to have a good time. That's why he's not here. And just like Israel, they chose and choose time and time again in Judges to serve the gods they see, the Baals and the Asherah. See, Satan knows if he can get you to serve the gods you can see, he has you in his pocket. If he can get you to choose to serve the God of money or your career or your possessions, or the God of your kids, or the God of your preferred political leader, or the God of your body, or the God of your earthly identity over your identity in Christ. He knows I have them in my pocket. I can take them down. Choosing the God they can see rather than the one they can't. And we, f- we feel like to choose the gods we see The reason why we do that is we feel we can predict that. That's why we do it time and time again. Because sin is so predictable, I feel like I can predict that, right? Money feels very predictable. The God of money feels very predictable. If I get paid Friday, I can buy blank on Saturday. Or career feels predictable, right? It feels predictable. If I do A, I can move up to B and then I'll get C, Or politics, they feel predictable. If I vote for person A, then they'll do B, and then we'll get C. Or our bodies feel predictable. If I sleep with this person, or I look this way, I'll feel good. And then I'll be happy. See, it feels so predictable. Predictable. And it is. Because it's not what I think I'm going to get that's predictable. It's the results that are predictable. Because even though it feels predictable, it really isn't all that predictable. The God of money, money can come in today and be gone tomorrow. It could stop coming tomorrow. Your boss can like you today, but not tomorrow. Your favorite political leader can promise you something today he or she can't pull off tomorrow. Your kids are crushing it in school today they love everything that you love today and they hate it tomorrow. You like your body today but not tomorrow. And when things feel predictable then all of a sudden they aren't. What are we left with? The predictable result of sin, which is destruction, particularly in the form of anxiety. We are very anxious, and we have anxiety about finances. Anxiety about pleasing our boss, all these things kind of lead to this destructive behavior, right? This destructive result. Then we have anxiety about who's the president or who's in Congress and the decisions that they're making. Or we have a- anxiety about being sexually satisfied. And the more anxious we get, what do we do? The more we double down on serving the gods we can see rather than the God we can't. So you get anxious about money, what's the solution? You know it. Get more. Let me serve that God more. You get anxious about your boss? No problem. Find a new one. Go to HR. They'll take care of it. Anxious about your kids? Simple. Smother them until they're the kids you dreamed that they would be. Or worse, the kid you wished you were. Oh, I, I know you hate that sport, but I, I wish I was good at that sport, so you're going to play that sport. Oh, you I wasn't very good in school, but you're going to be. Maybe it'll be different for you. And anxiety just isn't in us as individuals. It actually has become the water our society swims in. And so when we serve the gods, we can see rather than the God that we can't we become more anxious and we feel this confusion and the contradiction of the gray zone we're in. And we deal with it in one of two destructive ways. First, one way we deal with it is silence, which is how I often deal with it. Kind of go into myself, get stuck in the same thoughts over and over again, just over and over the cycle of thoughts in my head. And so what do we have in our culture right now? A mental health crisis. It's like, I, I love all these stories. Oh, the pandemic, you know, created a mental health crisis. No, the pandemic just highlighted it. We had it already. It was there. Now we see it. So we deal with it in destructive number, way of silence, but also violence. So for instance... You have anxiety about politics. What did that cause? January 6, 2021. Or what we saw this week, assassination attempts, assassination attempt on one of our Supreme Court justices. You don't think our world's anxious? Right, because when this is your God... When that side of thing is your God, to be faithful to the gods that we see means taking matters into your own hands. Right? You have to be faithful to that God. So if this person's gonna destroy the the our country, we gotta take them out. If decisions they're gonna make are gonna destroy our country, we gotta take them out. That's the only solution, right? I can donate, I can vote, but that's gonna take some time. So we gotta take we gotta do this now. Don't you hear the anxiety of that? So to be faithful to the gods that we see, we have to take these matters into our own hands rather than trusting the goodness of the God we can't see and who invites us to leave our lives and our world in his loving, caring hands. So not only is sin predictable, so are its results. No matter what, when we don't find we want the gods When we don't find the gods that we see, we're left with these anxious lives and we're left with an anxious world. And we're left then with the weight that's impossible for us to carry. And then you have a choice. You can go back to those gods and try again. or you can cry out to the true one, the one you can't see. And if you're like me, you double down. You just go back to the same God. God of money. Oh, man, I'm really worried about money right now. All I need to do is get more. Let me take another side hustle. Let's do it. Let's go. Let me work to death. Let's do it. Let's go. And then I'm even more anxious about making money. I don't know how that happened. I have no time. I never see my family, my kids. I never spend time in God's Word because I'm always answering emails or doing something else. And then I wonder why am I anxious? So I end up doubling down on that. I'm anxious about my kids and the grades that they make, and they become my gods. And I study with them, and I go over their finals with them, and they don't get an A. And I just double down. I go, okay, we're just going to study harder next time. Instead of being like, you know what? A B plus is pretty good. Some people would kill for a B plus. When I was a kid, I would kill for a B plus. And so we're left with that choice or we cry out to the one we can't see. So look at surprising salvation, starting in verse 12. I'm going to read a large chunk here, so just roll with me. But it's an interesting story. Here's the predictable sin again. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened the king of Moab against Israel, Eglon, the king of Moab, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Malachites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. All right, we, we heard this already. Then, what happens? The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite. which actually, Benjamite means people of the right hand, so this is kind of funny. What's, what's Ehud? Left-handed. So impress your friends with that later. That was for free. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, which is about 18 inches. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all of his attendants went out from his presence, and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So message can also be translated thing. So he might be saying, I have a thing from God for you. Here's the thing. So he rose from his seat, Eglon. So it's kind of funny. This large guy gets out of his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. There's the thing from God for you. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. The Bible's pretty awesome. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. So then what happens is Ehud then he calls Israel to himself and he tells them, Yahweh has given their enemies into their hands, and they actually killed 10,000 Moabites, Moabite men, and the land has rest for 80 years. And then, verse 31 after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with the ox goad, and he also saved Israel. God saves in surprising ways. See, the weight of our anxious lives in our world is impossible for us to carry. So God must step in and do something about it. But his salvation doesn't always come the way you predict. Not only that, technology, for instance, has come to make us expect predictability. All right, so if you have an iPhone, you have Face ID, you expect predictability that when I look at my phone, my phone will magically open. Unless you're like me, where it now has a malfunction with the face ID and I'm punching in a passcode on my phone like it's 2016 again. But teenagers, for instance, you expect that when you go home that the Wi-Fi is going to work or your apps are going to load or your Xbox is going to fire up. Technology has set us to expect predictability and when it doesn't work, we freak out and we complain at the pulpit about being like it's 2016 again, punching in a passcode. But God doesn't always work that way. God doesn't work with expectation of predictability, because He knows it's better for us to rely on Him to draw up and implement His plan than for us to do it. We have to let God be God. I don't know if you've seen the movie Bruce Almighty. Do you remember when it's stereotypically God is Morgan Freeman? Because who else has a godlike voice but Morgan Freeman? And he makes Jim Carrey God for for some time and lets him be God. And Jim Carrey says yes. I don't know if you remember this. He says yes to everybody's prayer requests, which is great for some time. Like people are on like a donut diet and they're still losing weight, like that kind of stuff. But then people start to, to there tends to be like conflicting prayer requests and things start to fall apart. And what he realizes in the end is like, I got to let God be God. And we have to let God be God. Like, it means that God is going to save his people and it's often going to happen in surprising ways. That's God being God. It's not God being us. See, the story of Ehud is full of humor and, we, and some of you caught it, right? An Israelite wouldn't have missed it. Eglon was a very fat man. Is he, are we fat-shaming Eglon? No. Like, young people, back in the day, there wasn't enough food. It's plain and simple. So being fat didn't mean that you ate too much of your own food. It means you ate too much of everybody else's. So Eglon had gotten fat off of Israel's food. And he's so fat. How fat was he? He's so fat (laughs) that when Ehud stabs him, his fat ends up covering up an 18-inch sword. And then Ehud leaves, right? The left-handed man from the right-handed people leaves and he locks the door. And so what does Eglon's servants do? They come back and they think he's on the toilet. And because they're not your children, they're not like knocking and asking Eglon when he's going to be done or like reaching their fingers under the doors, right? They're like, we're adults. We wait for people to get done in the bathroom, but after a while, they're like, ah, oh, man, uh, he's been in there for a long time. Like, I know dad takes forever, but like, you know, this is a long time. Maybe we should check on him, make sure he's all right. So they unlock the door, and what happens? They find him there dead. And because of all the time they waited for him to come out of the bathroom, Ehud gets away. Like, it's a really funny story, and the Israelites wouldn't have missed it. It's a funny story, but it's a surprising one. Because Ehud is left-handed in a world of right-handed people from the right-handed people. So what happened is, right-handed people, in a world of right-handed people, they would always put their swords on their left so they could draw their swords easily. So what's happened is, Ehud has it on his right. So when the guard's looking for the sword to be bulging out on the left of Ehud's clothes, he didn't see one because everybody puts it on the left side. But here's the deal. It's not that Ehud chose to be left-handed. The Hebrew actually makes us realize that his right hand was disabled. He couldn't use his right hand. Which is probably why Israel sent him to pay the tribute. They're like, this disabled guy, he's not going to do anything here. He's not a threat. So Ehud isn't seen as a threat because he's disabled. So who would have predicted a disabled man would kill a king? The Moabites didn't. I mean, they left the room. But even the Israelites, his own people, didn't expect it. No one would have predicted Ehud, but God saves in surprising ways by using a disabled man to save his people. And Shamgar, whose name isn't Hebrew, And he probably, but he probably has the coolest name, right? Shamgar. Like, let's all hang out with Shamgar. He killed 600 dudes with an ox goad, which is just like an eight-foot stick with a pointy end. 600 people. That's crazy, right? But he's probably not an Israelite. Who would have predicted a non-Jew would save Jews. No one. Yet God saves in surprising ways and he uses Shamgar to save Israel with an ox goat. See, God saves in surprising ways with surprising persons like a disabled man or a non-Jew, with surprising methods like a tribute to a fat king. And with surprising tools like a hidden sword or an ox goad. The God we can't see may not save like you predict. But he saves his people nonetheless. And the ultimate surprise, the way he did this, was with the ultimate surprising person, method, and tool. No one would have predicted that the Messiah would be God himself in the flesh, a poor carpenter. No one would have predicted that God would have to die, that the method of salvation would mean that God himself would have to die. And no one would predict predicted that God would die on a cross to save us a surprising tool. Yet this is exactly what God did for us in Jesus. Jesus came as a poor carpenter, died, and died on a cross, the Roman equivalent to an electric chair, so that you and I might be saved from our sins. And I don't know about you, but it's really comforting to me that God... Saves in surprising ways. Because when I look around my life and our world, I say, I don't know how this is going to change. When I live in the gray zone, how's this going to be fixed? Like you might be here today and you're, you're not a follower of Jesus and you're just like, I, I don't know how this is all going to work out. But God's surprising and he surprises us in the way he saves us. So, that we, so we're comforted by that. That we can't predict it. And so we aren't left with anxiety, but assurance. See, because of the weight of our lives and our world, it's not on your shoulders. It's in His hands. I love the fact that when it says that Israel roared, that doesn't say that they repented. That the word intentionally does not include repentance. Repentance because it reminds us that God didn't save Israel because of something they did. He saved out of his goodness. So if you aren't perfect, he still seeks to save you. Why? Because you're his. And he went to surprising lengths to save all those who put their faith and trust in him. And because it's not, because it's not up to you to predict It rests on God's promises. He promises to save all those He went to surprising lengths to save in His Son. And you can't predict it, but it's promised to you. Now the God who saves in surprising ways and uses you and me, He uses us now to share the good news of His surprising salvation with others. And watch as he surprises you with the people he saves. Because no one with breath in their lungs has had their story completely written yet. Pray that God would surprise you by saving them in surprising ways, like he saved you in a surprising way. And Paul talks about that. God chose what was foolish and weak, you and me. You are a surprise. Ask God to save others who would be surprising to you as well. So I'm just going to leave you some questions today. What do you want? The predictability of sin or the surprising salvation of God? What do you want? Think about it. What does your life reflect that you want? Where are you trying to predict for Him to save you when he might be planning to save you through a surprise? Where are you burdened by anxiety because you're choosing the God you see, and instead you need to trust the God you don't see? Are you choosing money to save you? Because you can see it, your boss, your career, your kids, your politics, your body, what is it? Where do you need to trust God, the God you don't see? And whose story do you act like is already written? And you need to be reminded yourself that God's not done with them. And you need to really prayerfully, consistently ask God to surprise you and save them. And how does God want to use you, a person of his surprising salvation, to keep surprising people? through His salvation. Where is that? How can God use you that way? Ask Him. And so let's pray and we'll continue our service as we worship this God who saves us in surprising ways. With all, before we jump in the prayer, with all heads and eyes closed, I just want to invite you, if you never never trusted God's surprising salvation and you've been trying to do this yourself and try to figure it out and it's just not working out, I just want to give you a moment to just reach out to God silently, just ask him to forgive you, to save you. Maybe today is the surprise where he wakes you up and he taps you on the shoulder and says, now is the time I want you to give me your heart. And for the rest of us, Father, keep saving us in surprising ways. Keep coming through. You saved us once in a surprising way. The fact that I'm here standing is a surprise. Standing here in your family, in your church. And I pray that we would just continue to reach out and care for people and realize people's stories aren't written. And God, will continue to you'll continue to save in surprising ways. And we thank you for how you surprised us by coming and taking on flesh, God the Son. Coming as a poor carpenter in first century Palestine, dirty, no indoor plumbing, first century Palestine. And you died for us. and You died for us on a cross. The excruciating pain of the cross. And we thank you for that. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.